we see now many of the leaders in healthcare in, in hospital settings having a combined degree. And some of my mentors currently have actually taken a, a bit of a pause in clinical practice in order to go get an executive MBA or take classes to understand the business side of medicine. I think people understand that there really needs to be much of this crosstalk, whether that's for hospital administration or for healthcare innovation and entrepreneurship. Hey, everybody, and welcome to The Slice, a podcast about the people behind innovation in healthcare. I'm your host, Justin Barad, co-founder and CEO of OsoVR, orthopedic surgeon, and pizza enthusiast. Each week, we hear the thrilling stories of innovators driving change and improving health around the world. Let's get started. We're really lucky today to have Dr. Ben Nwachuku on the podcast. Ben is a orthopedic surgeon and joint replacement specialist at Hospital for Special Surgery, also known as HSS. He went to college at Columbia and received his MD and MBA from Harvard. He did his residency at HSS and his fellowship at the prestigious Rush Fellowship for Joint Replacement. He's also a team doctor for the Nets, which sounds really cool. I'd love to hear about that. And is also founder of Best in Class MD, a telemedicine platform that Ben's going to tell us a little bit about later in the show. But Ben, thank you so much for being on the show. Absolutely, Justin. Thank you so much for having me on the show. It's a true pleasure and an honor. Yeah, I'm really excited. We have shared a lot of mutual friends. I've heard so much about you. So I can't believe we finally get to hear your story firsthand. So, I mean, start us off. Like, how did you start on the road even to getting interested in healthcare? Like, get us to the very beginning. Yeah. So, you know, I grew up in the UK in London. And so my mother was a nurse in the NHS. And so I really was influenced by my mom's passion for healthcare. And so when I had the opportunity at 16, I volunteered in a hospital, in my mom's hospital, actually, where I assisted in certain patient care duties and started immersing myself in healthcare and really got the bug there. And then when I was in college, I actually got a summer internship to work with Dr. David Alchek at actually the Hospital for Special Surgery, where I caught the bug specifically for orthopedic surgery and sports medicine. As a former athlete, I, I love the plight of the athlete and I love the opportunity to get them back to doing the things that they wanted to do, working with patients who are super motivated. And it just felt very fulfilling for me. And ever since then, I've sort of been off to the races, chasing my dream to become an orthopedic surgeon. So even, would you say in college, you decided on orthopedics or where was that point for you? Yeah. So in college, I knew that I wanted to go into medicine and I wanted to go into a field of medicine that gave me the same passion that I could have with orthopedics. And, you know, really what that was for me was tangibly making people better and having an impact on their lives and on their health. And so when I went to medical school, I sought that a lot in different specialties. And I had various specialties actually come really close. So surgical oncology for me was a big one where I felt as though for those patients where you could go in and you could, you know, quite literally excise their tumor and make them significantly better, it was such high impact for me. But then at the same time, I also felt myself taking home 
a lot of the losses because you can't cure everyone of their cancer. And so for me, it was, it was quite heavy. And so when I considered all the specialties and my interests during my third year of medical school, orthopedic surgery really won out. And so I decided to go into orthopedics. Did you have one of those personal statements where you're like, oh, I was an athlete and I had an awesome orthopedic surgeon? <laughs> yeah, you know, my, my personal statements vary throughout the year. So written three major personal statements at, at this point. My first personal statement, obviously, is getting in med school, then personal statement into residency, and then into fellowship. This is probably not the question that you, you want to ask, but my, personal, my first personal statement was actually about a college basketball game that I played at Duke. Cameron Indoor as a college student and talking about my love of sports and how being a team player would ultimately make me a better doctor. And then my personal statement for uh, residency was actually talking about my own personal injury, where I ruptured my Achilles tendon as a medical student and had to have my Achilles tendon repaired and how that you know really motivated me to be a better doctor and also just knowing the impact that my orthopedic surgeon had on me made me want to go into orthopedics specifically. And then my post statement for sports medicine fellowship was a little bit of a rehash of my residency personal statement. Don't don't tell my fellowship director. <laughs> well, they, they sound like much better personal statements than than what I wrote, so uh, I would worry about it. So that's all really interesting. What's kind of a little bit different about you is you're at Harvard, you're getting your MD, but you also got an MBA from HBS, which not many people do. I think it's becoming more common now, but, you know, we often talk to people on this show who are MDs and have MBAs and, you know, it used to be a little bit taboo to do that. So I'm kind of curious, you know, what what led you to want to get an MBA and, and how did people feel about that as you were kind of growing in your clinical career? Yeah, that, that's that's right, Justin. And when I got the MBA, and at least when I applied to get the MBA, that was 2008. And really, at that point, it was quite taboo. And I had various mentors dissuade me because they felt as though doctors who had MD MBAs were quote unquote flight risks or potentially didn't care about medicine. They weren't purists. But I remember going to a lecture from an MD MBA at Harvard, and they basically imparted on me how Harvard felt like they had a responsibility to train the future leaders of healthcare, and how we needed more people who were at the intersection of medicine and business, and how the medical side of things and the business side of things don't really have a significant crosstalk. And I even see that today in clinical practice where there's hospital administration and there's doctors, but not really a lot of people who can go between those various worlds. And so Harvard's mission and Harvard's thought at the time when they started the MD-MBA program, I was one of the early classes of the combined MD-MBA program, their mission was that they're going to invest in the medical students and send them to Harvard Business School in order to train the future leaders of healthcare because they felt that the leaders of tomorrow in healthcare would be the people who knew how to walk those two worlds. And so I knew at the time that the resistance that I was facing from my mentors and people thinking that I was doing the wrong thing by going to Harvard Business School for a few years, I knew that that actually was something that made it the right decision because ultimately change is hard and to do the right thing 
you often will meet resistance. And so that gave me the courage to do it. And look, sometimes when I was at Harvard Business School, I felt like a little bit of an imposter because the folk there, you know, they were from McKinsey and from Goldman Sachs, and they could talk the talk and walk the walk. And I was a medical student. I I knew about, you know, phagocytosis and, you know, (laughs) cellular biology, but I I didn't know how to do credits and debits on a, a simple spreadsheet. But it was super valuable experience. And I think that it's really set me up for who I am today. Do you think attitudes have changed at all? How do you think people view MBAs today versus when you were kind of first thinking about doing it? Yeah, I I think attitudes have changed quite significantly. I think that 10 years is a long time. And we see now many of the leaders in healthcare in in hospital settings uh, having a combined degree. And some of my mentors currently have actually taken a, a bit of a pause in clinical practice in order to go get an executive MBA or take classes to understand the business side of medicine. I think people understand that there really needs to be much of this crosstalk, whether that's for hospital administration or for healthcare innovation and entrepreneurship. And so it's really become a lot more encouraged than it was previously. Now, interestingly, a lot of people ask me, you know, do I need an MBA to be able to innovate or need a business degree? Like, how do you feel like you're an innovator? You've started up some enterprises. Has it been helpful? Do you think it's a total need to have? What's your perspective? Yeah, I don't actually. I don't think that you need to have the MBA. I think that you need some level of training or formal indoctrination, right? Whether that's through spending time in business school or on the job training. Right, You can potentially not have an MBA, but you could go work at a consulting firm or you can go work at a startup and develop on-the-job training that essentially will give you some of the skill sets that the MBA gives you. I will say one of the nice things about going to business school and spending time with business school classmates is that it does create a network. Mm -hmm. It creates a network that you can tap into of like-minded individuals and, you know, oftentimes of individuals who are making changes in the sector. I would say that if I could go back to a younger me and if I could give advice, I would say take better advantage of cultivating the relationships and the networks at business school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I totally agree. I know a few people who have attended HBS like Brady, like we were talking about earlier, and it just sounds like the network is really a unique thing that you can get that can really jumpstart you because we live in a very big silo, but in medicine, and we're just so limited and so inward looking. And something like business school can really just get you out of that bubble to get some new ideas in. Similarly, though, for me, when I started Oso. I had no formal business training and nor had I ever done anything like this before. And some of our investors told me that they actually preferred that in the very, very early stage because you don't know what is or isn't possible because no one's really told you sort of how it works. And so you'll be willing to try new things because you're not really limited by any dogma and, uh, you know, sort of courageous by ignorance sort of thing. So there are advantages to sort of both pathways, but that network, it really can be second to none and, and seems really exciting. Yeah, no, I I totally agree. Uh, That's spot on. And look, I I will say, I think that ignorance factor is is key, right? There is a sort of a indoctrination that occurs when you sort of learn to talk the talk and walk the walk. And, you know, being able to be an outsider to a certain degree allows for innovation and for you to challenge the traditional status quo. So, 
you finish up your MBA, you finish up MD, you're at HSS for residency. Tell me a little bit about that. Did you dabble much in innovation, in technology at all, or were you just pretty much 100% focused on your clinical career? Yeah, so coming out of HBS and HMS, I took more of the academic side of my you know business path, and I actually started publishing a fair amount in healthcare economics and cost-effectiveness research. And so I used my business background to separate myself academically in that regard. And it was very interesting. You know, I embraced mentors like Kevin Bozik, who's currently at Dell Medical School, and thinking about ways to have an impact on healthcare policy and, you know, on a broader level. But I'd always had an eye on healthcare entrepreneurship. And so it was somewhere, something that I was always very interested in, but it's very risky, right? And there's really not a lot of ways to get involved as a resident unless someone pulls you in, like our mutual friend Brady got involved in. And so I did not have the courage to you know, leave residency to chase an idea, although I certainly had ideas. So I would say coming out of the program, I really sort of focused on the quote unquote safe side of pursuing my medicine and business passion, which was uh, through an academic format. Well, certainly very important. We could probably have a whole podcast talking about healthcare economics and how little we understand of sort of the cost and business implications of the decisions we make for our patients in a vacuum. I, I, I just find that area very fascinating. But you bring up a really interesting point and one that a lot of people reach out to me personally, like kind of in crisis or having a lot of stress because there really isn't a good answer for how to handle kind of people a lot like us, I would say at that stage where you're in training, but there are things that you want to try or ideas you want to be involved with. And people sometimes face a decision of, do I finish my training? Do I pursue this idea? Do I try and do both? There's not really like a good structure for them or pathway. And it's it's extremely stressful when you're in that position, especially when there's like a long road before you're done with your training, like two to three years, which seems like forever. So did you ever deal with that yourself? Or have you run into others who are facing similar dilemmas? Like, have you had any ideas on how to kind of better address those situations? Yeah, I've had a lot of thoughts about it, actually. And I'm sure we'll get to this later. But the idea that I'm, you know, the company that I started now is uh, an idea that I had during residency. And it's sort of the idea that uh, my thought as a resident was that a lot of the residents are actually on the front lines, on the literal front lines of healthcare delivery, right? They're the people who are in the hospital 12 to 18 hours a day. You know, in theory, they shouldn't be in the hospital 18 hours a day with <laughs> your work, work hour limits, but they, they're literally on the front lines. They're working so hard. They rotate through various doctors. They rotate through various departments. They're the closest to medical school. They are actually the ones who understand the pain points, understand the difficulties. When the supervising physician leaves the room, they're the ones who spend that extra time with the patient and understand the patient's perspective. And so I'd always thought it was a shame that those people weren't the ones who were coming up with the ideas for you know new innovations in healthcare and that they didn't have a greater voice. Mm -hmm. And I thought it was an even bigger shame that you know there was always this idea that for a resident or someone in training to come up with an idea or to launch a company or something like that, 
they had to choose between their training and between the idea, right? Because it's just not fair. What other industry do they say that you have to essentially give up this thing that you worked so hard on? I just told you that, you know, I wanted to be an orthopedic surgeon since I was a sophomore in college. But if I wanted to pursue an idea, I would essentially have to just give up everything that I worked on up to that point to pursue that idea, right? It's a, it's a big bet. And, you know, my understanding is that the people who fund companies, they love it when people make that, make that leap because, you know, it shows that they quote unquote really believe in the idea. But I, I would, I would challenge you and say that that's a fallacy that, that we should work on creating ways to foster ideas for people in a way that potentially decreases the risk because I think that that will allow more ideas to surface. Oh, I mean, you're preaching to the choir, my friend, <laughs> more than you know. I mean, I cannot agree more with that. I actually was at an innovation conference. All the people presenting were like the chair of this department, the chair of that department. And I stood up and I said, hey, like, you know, what you guys are doing is really great. But my guess is you probably don't even know what like the OR kind of turnaround time is, right? Like you're so far removed from the day to day that it's like the light of a dying star, right? You're innovating for the problems of centuries past. And it really is the residents, the nurses, the people on the front lines that are right up next to the problem. They deeply understand it so well. And oftentimes they also understand sort of business and technology trends, yet they have like, you know, no ownership, no resources, no time to do anything about it. And the the best and the brightest and, and these people that can solve these problems, do we want to force them to alienate themselves and blow up their lives and their careers to try and solve these things? Or do we want to try and create a more sustainable environment where we can be more connected to the process and not just for financial gain, but for other intangible benefits? And also just not have to have people have this like really stressful existential choice that I went through where it's like, hey, if you want to try and do something that has a 99.9% failure rate, you have to completely blow up your life and give up your career of 14 plus years that you built. So it is a, you know, if there is a way to do that, and I strongly believe that there is, I really want to be a part of supporting that. And yeah, it sounds like you're, you're thinking about it. Oh yeah, I do think that there's a way to do that. Stay tuned. We'll we'll revisit this <laughs> in the next podcast in five years. <laughs> All right. Episode part two. Uh, but call me. Well, that's so exciting. And uh, yeah, I just could not agree with you more. So you managed to keep your head down. You know, you finish residency, finish fellowship. I want to take like one break here and just ask you like, your career seems like a dream. Like you're your background is incredibly impressive. You've done it all. <laughs> like, thank you. Obviously, in medicine, we fail all the time. Where they say, like, if you're not getting complications, you're not operating, right? We are familiar with failure, but it it often it feels very personal, very emotional. But it's also different than sort of a career failure. I don't know how to describe it, but it just it just feels different. And the journey of innovation, entrepreneurship, at least my experience is one filled with failure. It's a, it's a daily occurrence. It's constant. And so I'm kind of curious, like, what have been your run-ins up until this point with with some type of failure, some type of challenge? Because it's, you know, it just seems like you're you're crushing it and hitting a complete grand slam. Like, were there any obstacles along the way? Yeah, I mean, Justin, I, I had a ton of obstacles, you know, and look, I, I think that I've been fortunate and blessed along the way. But the part that we haven't talked about, obviously, is that I'm the last of five kids. You know, I'm an African immigrant. My mom moved to London in, in order to 
you know, find a better path for our family. And, you know, that essentially broke up our family. And so I was the only one that moved to London with her. So obviously that's a challenge. And then obviously just being an immigrant raised in, in the UK by, by my mother was a challenge. And then when I came to the US, I came alone at the age of 16 and lived with host families for three years while I tried to go to college. So, you know, you certainly have uh, challenges. I've certainly had challenges and, you know, failures along the way. I think one of the things that people don't realize is that, you know, if you're not American, to go to medical school in America is exceedingly challenging. So if you could think back to your medical school class, you probably didn't have a lot of non-Americans in your medical school class. And so, you know, uh, my pre-med counselor told me to essentially consider going to med school in Europe, which for me at that point wasn't very appealing. And that was a disappointment, right? It was sort of, do you cave and wilt to this person that is assigned to be your advisor? Or do you bet on yourself and believe in yourself and go ahead and apply? And so the only schools that at the time that allowed you to apply to medical school without having all four years worth of medical tuition in an escrow account were the Harvards, the Columbias, the Yales of the world. So do you decide at that point that you're going to go down this path and pursue medicine and Harvard or bust? Or do you just do something different? And so that sort of betting on yourself, avoiding failure. And I was fortunate. I didn't fail. I got in. But, you know, I would say that obviously this is not for me to sort of list all of my hurdles. But I think that at various points, you know, up until this point, and even this very day, you have sort of your micro failures and macro failures that you have to push through. Well, that's really inspiring. <laughs> it's incredible what you overcame. And I really like people to know about those things and to talk about those things, because especially in maybe not medicine as much, but the startup world, like everyone's always crushing it. And every startup book you ever read, it's everything goes great. And, you know, here's how I did it. Here's how you can succeed too. And, you know, the truth is a lot messier than that. And I think challenge and failure are the name of the game. And it's more what I want out of my books or when I listen to a podcast is to know what went wrong. Like, how do you how do you deal with challenges, both psychologically, emotionally, and, and also just tactically when, when you encounter them? And another thing that I think about is I'm a big fan of medical history. And, you know, there's, there's this one book by Sherwin B. Newland called Doctors that talks about, like, some of the, the brightest minds in our history that, like, like Halstead and Vesalius and uh, Lister and all these people that have really pushed the field forward. But it also talks about them as people. And what you learn from this book and from history is that they have some significant challenges and, and some personality issues. And the fact of the matter is, you don't have to be great to be great. Anyone can do this. You just have to really be passionate and apply yourself like you clearly have. And so thank you for sharing some of that. That was really inspiring. Yeah, thank you, Justin. So I've been kind of putting it off, but I'd love to get to kind of the, the innovation and, and the platform that you're developing. I mean, like start from the beginning, like tell me about Best in Class MD and like how did the idea come about? How did you actually start working about it? And just share a little bit about what you actually do. Yeah. So, you know, like I alluded to earlier, um, had been thinking of this idea in residency around the idea of how do you improve connectivity in orthopedic surgery? And, you know, I'd actually kicked around some ideas with Brady and sort of, you know, this idea that 
you know, when you want to figure out who's the best person to have surgery with you or to, have to do your surgery, you call another doctor and it seems to be a little bit of a inside network of figuring out who is the best person for a procedure or who is the best person for a medical problem. And so that, that was always something that had bothered me and wanted to improve transparency in medical decision-making. And then I was always going through residency, you know, fortunate to be at HSS, the number one orthopedic hospital in the country. I realized that a lot of the doctors at HSS were essentially siloed, right, in the sort of ivory tower of HSS and people came from all over to have their care HSS. But that sort of leads to a little bit of healthcare inequality and also for the doctors, I imagine that they probably want to expand themselves out of the traditional brick and mortar. And during the course of my residency and coming back on staff, I became very friendly with my now co-founder, Dr. Riley Williams, who is really at the sort of precipice of orthopedic achievement. He is, you know, has all of the degrees. He's been in practice for 30 years. He's team physician for the Nets, the Liberty, the Red Bull, USA Basketball, He's really sort of like the top guy. And he, he was explaining to me how his frustration with where he is at in clinical practice is that he doesn't get to sort of spread himself out of his traditional silo. He doesn't get to take care of sort of Joe every person. And so when COVID came around, we sort of had this idea as telemedicine was evolving that hospitals were going to be like the blockbuster of old <laughs> and telemedicine and telehealth was going to be Netflix, right? So how do you, how do you disrupt the brick and mortar and get out of the sort of traditional silo and embrace the future? And so our company, Best in Class MD, really spun out of that idea, which is that how do we get doctors like Dr. Williams, who, you know, is a top provider to have global access? How do you increase his or her reach? And then how do you embrace the technology that has come about, which is telehealth, telemedicine, to, to do that? And so our company is essentially an expert medical opinion company where you can find an orthopedic surgeon on demand 24-7. That was the initial premise, and now we've expanded to include every medical specialty. And we've evolved even further to becoming a connector for our patients to have surgeries at the different institution as part of a bundled care program to ultimately drive down the cost of care, right? And that, that's sort of the really exciting part for us. Well, that sounds really exciting. So how many providers are on the platform at this point? So we have 170 medical providers on the platform. So, and that, that's really one of the more fun parts was, I recruited most of the doctors. And so, you know, getting out there, talking with them, figuring out if it was a good fit and including them as part of the network was very exciting. Uh, I'm a social person. So it's been great to make those connections. And then seeing the company grow and seeing the work of those providers has been really exciting for me. How did you get it all started in the beginning? Was it just kind of like bootstrapped or did you kind of need to raise some funding? Yeah, so initially we were actually doctor founded. And so we basically pitched our ideas to some of our founding docs and we said, look, this is our idea. Do you believe in it? And it's sort of this idea that digital health was the future. 
and that doctors would want to break out of their traditional brick and mortar. And so we raised money from our doctors initially to build our platform, hire staff, and then we've been off the races ever since. Well, that's super cool. So where can people learn more about Best in Class? Yeah, so www.bicmd.com. So we pride ourselves as being one of the few on-demand platforms where you can chat with an orthopedic surgeon um, with a video visit on demand. So if you wanted to talk with Dr. Williams, you could do that. And so we are direct consumer. We also have clients that include insurance companies, self-insured employers. So we offer ourselves as a health benefit as well. So I think this will be really interesting for our listeners because, I mean, right now you are faculty at HSS, but you've also co-founded a business. And how do you balance those two elements? Like, how does HSS feel about that? Has that caused any friction or how are you able to navigate that? Yeah, I think that every institution is different. Some institutions are a little bit more stringent about outside doctor activities. I think that HSS, um, they have a stance that you have to be transparent about your outside engagements. So I've been fully transparent about uh, my involvement and my founding of Best in Class MD, and where I'm actually working through a partnership with HSS, where they'll use our company to help provide expert medical opinion. I think that HSS is of the mindset that innovation fostered by the doctors is a is a great thing, and so the chief innovation officer at HSS is a physician, but they HSS is very cognizant that there shouldn't be a conflict of attention, right, and so. We do track to make sure that, you know, I'm still a good doctor and while I'm still a good entrepreneur. So you have to balance and you have to hold yourself accountable to be a good doctor. And that circles back to the conversation that we started off with, which is the idea of can you walk both worlds? Can you balance it? Can you be a healthcare entrepreneur while also being an excellent physician, and excellent surgeon? I think that's the dream. And for listeners that are curious, we do have Dr. Mike Ast uh, also on the podcast, uh, the Chief Medical Innovation Officer of HSS. So do tune into that episode if you have the chance. But, you know, I think my dream growing up, and I mean, to some, some extent, I'm living it today, but to be able to practice and be innovative at the same time for a lot of people who are entrepreneurial or innovative is, you know, a dream come true, but very difficult to execute on for a variety of reasons. And I think you highlighted conflict of attention or conflict of commitment that taking care of patients takes a lot of time and you want to do it safely. And then building a large company also can take a lot of time and attention. So I think there are very few institutions that I think are probably thinking this way and hopefully more and more as time goes on. But a lot of people I know at a lot of academic medical centers or hospitals are scared to innovate because they don't know sort of the implication of the ownership or if it's going to get them in trouble, you know, if it's worth it, it's going to be taken away from them. So, you know, I think the model that you're describing sounds like it's been very effective for you. And, you know, I continue to want to kind of push for more and more institutions to adopt more open models that encourages innovation beyond just like, hey, I want to own this or I want to make money off of this because there are, there are benefits to having a world leader, an innovative leader like you at your institution, because you learn about these trends and how to plug in, you know, HSS is probably going to be a leader on this platform in the space of telemedicine, right? Where others don't have that opportunity because they're on the outside looking in rather than on the inside. 
Yeah, and I am hopeful that the trend is going to continue to change. I think that even during my time at HSS, uh, you know, I've seen HSS evolve how it sees uh, physician entrepreneurs. And I would say that for people thinking about it at various institutions, all you can do is ask, right, and uh, help to craft the policies of the institution. Obviously, it also helps to have you know, senior leadership and, you know, people with a bit of gray hair who also want to push for institutional change. But for me, as I was choosing uh, places that I wanted to work after fellowship, I knew that healthcare entrepreneurship and the business side of medicine was important to me. And so it was important to me to be at an institution that allowed me to work on that other aspect of my career. So what do you think is the next step for, uh, for best in class? Like, how are you guys going to continue to scale? Yeah, so, you know, ultimately, I think that at this point, we are a great solution for, you know, expert medical opinions, medical record reviews. Our goal is to evolve to be a care manager, care management company. And that's already starting to work with our bundled payment program, where our insurance clients are basically trusting us to manage the entire episode of care from the expert medical opinion to the eventual surgery and then to, you know, full recovery, return to work. And so I think that as we grow, scaling that across uh, different clients is a great next step. And then ultimately, you know, I think that, you know, population health is, is our ultimate goal, right? And I think that when people think about population health, they oftentimes will think about primary care and, you know, some of the other sexy parts of medicine. But I will say that musculoskeletal is a huge burden in terms of its impact on quality of life. The impact of hip osteoarthritis has been shown to be as significant as the impact of conditions like diabetes or HIV. And one in two Americans has some kind of musculoskeletal uh, pain. And so I think that ultimately, if we can even move further up the chain to work on prevention and population health management for musculoskeletal conditions, that would be my hope for the company. Yeah, I don't think people realize really what a large percentage of healthcare burden musculoskeletal care is. And I think it's probably something that just like irks, irks us is that people think it's a lot more simple than it is. We, we are very simple people as orthopedic surgeons, but it is a, it is a very complex field. And What's interesting is the vast majority of people that, and I'm curious as to your opinion, that are seeing patients with musculoskeletal disease are not specialists, right? They're not orthopedic surgeons. Certainly in my space of pediatric orthopedics, I'm dealing pretty much constantly with the ramifications of the the initial point of care was not a specialist, so something kind of irreversible happened that now you have to deal with the ramifications. And that's just, there aren't enough pediatric orthopedic surgeons to go around to be able to take care of, you know, all of the, the trauma or various conditions that take place. So... I could definitely see how a platform like this can really address that by giving more direct access to expertise, especially in these situations where a decision could be, it's not necessarily like life or death, but certainly can have massive quality of life implications. Yeah. And it's, you hit it right on the head, Justin. And, you know, it's, it's something that I often come up against in the sales cycle where I try to explain to potential clients that, it actually saves money to introduce a specialist further upstream. People will shy away and they'll say, oh, actually, 
you know, you want to not have a specialist further upstream because the specialist, a touch point where the specialist is expensive, et cetera. But what's not taken into account with that equation is the potential delays in care, the utilization or misutilization of resources. And there's data out of Mayo that talk about, that shows the referral patterns when someone is managed by a specialist versus someone who's not quite familiar with the condition. People will end up in a chronic condition for longer and they will not have had the appropriate diagnostic steps prior to that point. And so ultimately, my goal is for our company to become a front door for conditions. Look, I don't think every condition needs a specialist up front, but I think the key is identifying the appropriate triggers that will have a specialist in place so that such that, you know, if a primary care physician is managing someone with chronic back pain and, you know, a trigger comes up, then that's the appropriate time to refer them to a physiatrist to figure out if an epidural steroid injection is appropriate or some other intervention. Mm-hmm. Or I'm sure you're getting patients all the time who come in and they're like, you know, 60, 70 with their knee MRI that shows a meniscal tear. <laughs> so that's that. Yeah, exactly. So that's, that's it, right? You, you, you've, uh, you hit the nail on the head, right? So it's the 67 year old who has knee pain. They have an, uh, an x-ray that shows knee arthritis and they need a knee replacement and a primary care physician gets an MRI, and then they come into my office, and I say, look, you didn't need that MRI because I could tell you what the MRI is going to show from the x-ray. It's going to show that you have a meniscus tear. You actually need to do weight loss, physical therapy, activity modification, NSAIDs, and then consider a total knee replacement. And it's basically being able to outline that treatment path before that MRI is done. So, you know, a trigger would be an MRI of a knee in a 67-year-old, right? Like that's a good trigger to speak to a musculoskeletal specialist. (laughs) Well, you have me intrigued. Let let me know when uh, you're moving in the PEDS direction. It's really exciting. Well, I mean, so you're really plugged in. You have this amazing network. You're innovative. You're at the number one hospital in the country for orthopedics. What are you excited about right now when it comes to technology innovation outside of the work you're doing at Best in Class? Yeah, no. So, and I'm not just saying this, you know, to sort of play to my audience. I'm actually excited about the role of virtual reality for for training, right? And so I have another hat that I wear, which is I'm the director of the Center for Analytics, Modeling, and Prediction at HSS. And the our our center there is our hope is to essentially innovate and to use cutting edge technology to differentiate HSS, quite frankly, honest. And one of the things that we are thinking about is how can we sort of use technology to have our surgeons train other surgeons in the community, right? So, for example, over this past weekend, I taught a course in Denver where I taught other surgeons how to do hip arthroscopy, which is a bit of a specialized surgery that I do and that I learned in fellowship. Is there a way for us to, you know, have me in my apartment or in a lab in, in at HSS teach doctors in Denver or teach doctors in Japan how to do hip arthroscopy? Because ultimately, there's a burden for the top providers, top institutions to disseminate their knowledge, right? That's how we all get better. And so I think that HSS is very interested in doing that. And that's one of the areas that I'm quite excited about. 
Wow. Well, I, I want everyone to know that wasn't planned. But uh, yeah, that I mean, obviously, I totally agree with you. I think it is a very exciting area. And it is, you know, it's interesting to think about the amount of work you put into training, maybe like how many people were at your station at that course, right? Like three or four? And, and how many hours did it take you to travel there and back? Probably like three days or four days. Right. And so it's like, what is, what is the efficiency of kind of all of that and the cost and the opportunity cost to you personally for not seeing patients and just sort of taking away from your family? And can you not do that much more efficiently, immersively, you know, from your office and also more equitably, right? You know, not everyone has the time to go to a course in Colorado or maybe they are, you know, in Japan or another low resource region, but they need this training too. And so um, it is an area that I'm obviously dedicated my life to and I, I find to be incredibly exciting. And, you know, we really are just scratching the surface, but um, it's super excited, exciting to hear that somebody like you really finds that to be one of the top areas of uh, kind of innovation coming up. No, I, I do. So kudos to you and the work that you've been doing. I've been a fan from afar, so keep up the good work. Oh, well, <laughs> thank you. I'm, I'm, I'm turning bright red. Well, we're coming up on kind of the close of the podcast, and it is the slice tradition to ask you what your favorite pizza is and where your favorite pizza place is. Oh, wow. This is, this is going to be a terrible response. But so I, um, I have increasingly worse lactose intolerance as an adult. <laughs> so I generally shy away from pizza. However, um, in my 20s, I loved Mac and Manco's pizza in Jersey Shore. And so it was a pizza that had sort of all the meats. It would have sausage and bacon, sort of like a meat lover's pizza. And then it would have just this delicious sauce that... You can really only have one slice of the pizza, and it was enough to be <laughs> a dinner. <laughs> so I would say Mac and Manco's Pizza in South Jersey, they're meat lovers. That, that's my favorite. I need to brush up on my pizza history, but pizza with no cheese on it is totally fair game, especially in New Jersey. I've been to a lot of places that have some pretty bomb uh, cheeseless pizzas. So mm. don't lose hope. There's pizza for you, too. Nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, Ben, it's been a complete privilege hearing your story, your incredible accomplishments, and what's up and coming in the world of telemedicine and more equitable care for everyone with the power of technology. So thank you for being on The Slice today. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. It's been an honor. It was great having Dr. Nuochuku on the show. He is so inspiring for really two reasons. One is his ability to seemingly effortlessly balance both medicine and business, which is an ongoing challenge and a recurrent theme on the show, but also incredibly inspiring in terms of the grit that he's demonstrated. You would never guess. He makes it all seem so easy and so effortless, and he's at the top of his game, but he's overcome incredible obstacles to end up where he is. And the road of innovation in healthcare is hard. It's not easy, but it's incredibly worth it. And seeing what some people have gone through to end up where they are really inspires me to double my efforts and hopefully does the same for you all at home. Thank you to everyone who tuned in to today's episode. If you liked what you heard and want to know about the latest episodes, updates, and resources in the world of medtech, make sure to follow The Slice anywhere you can listen to podcasts. Follow OsoVR on LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram, or visit us at our website at osovr.com. Special thanks to our producers, Rachel Roberts, Sterling Shore, and Shauna Davis. I'm your host, Justin Broad, and we'll see you next time on The Slice. <laughs>